And that's pretty wild that she would like <laughs> paint a picture of this guy who doesn't exist, only he does, this sort of distant celebrity, this bad boy, this prototype of the wanderer, the cowboy, who was that masked man, the guy on the motorcycle. These are all the Flying Dutchmen. Welcome to He Sang, She Sang, the podcast that takes you deep inside your favorite operas. I'm Marin Lazian, and today we're talking about one of the biggest bad boys in all of Western music, Richard Wagner. Specifically, we're talking about the first of his major operas, The Flying Dutchman. My guest is William Berger, author and lecturer. He's a writer, producer, and commentator for the Metropolitan Opera. Will wrote a book called Wagner Without Fear, learning to love and even enjoy opera's most demanding genius. Demanding and genius are two words that get thrown around a lot when talking about Wagner. There are other words, too. Ponderous, visionary, offensive, rapturous, torturously long-winded. The list goes on. Wagner has been dead for 150 years, and he's still a polarizing figure. We're going to talk about that, and we're also going to take you through some of the best moments in Wagner's first major opera, The Flying Dutchman. Will Berger, your book, Wagner Without Fear, opens with this line. Richard Wagner was the most controversial artist who ever lived. So... Talk to me about that. Shots that's a, fired. That's a big, exactly. <laughs> of course, the first person to say that would have been Richard Wagner. He was very conscious of himself as a new voice in aesthetics and everything else. He wrote operas, or as he tended to call them, music dramas, because he found these to be vehicles for him to get the most amount of thought in one single work. And in fact, his works are the longest cohesive pieces of music, and they are cohesive. Uh, when you get to the end of any of them, you realize you were headed there the whole way. On top of that, he was a difficult and basically bad person. People ask, was he truly anti-Semitic? Was he truly a hateful person? Yes, he was, absolutely. And there's no question, there's no reason to pretend he wasn't. The the big thing that I always point out is appreciating his works will not turn you into an anti-Semitic proto-Nazi. You might be one already and you might be able to use this in your campaign, but it won't turn you into one. And I think there is a fear of that. Uh-oh, what if I like this? There seem to be a lot of barriers to entry for people and yes. Wagner's music. Yes. And it sounds like maybe you think that the fact that he was – sort of a terrible person, that that is one of the barriers to entry for people, that it puts people off and they don't want to get too close to the material. I don't personally believe that is truly a barrier for people. I believe people say that that's a barrier. But the other thing that Wagner tends to do is be the lightning rod of the bad artist. So, you know, as long as you hate Wagner, it's okay. You don't have to question everybody else. If you get into a lot of people through history, you're going to find that 
there is a disconnect between people you admire and artists you admire. And that is not saying love the art, hate the artists, or all these things, or that you can completely separate. It means that you have to approach them judiciously. I think it is very important with such powerful works of either intellect, philosophy, art, all the same thing, that you take it to a deep level. You take it to a profound level. You don't have to excuse anybody. All right. So love him or hate him, Wagner's music stands on its own. And maybe we can experience it independently of our feelings about the composer. But even Wagner's music has a reputation for being just as impossible as the man himself. My guest, William Berger, begs to differ. I would say things have changed. And if I'm taking someone to the opera for the first time, Wagner's the best person for a first-timer at the opera. Talk about controversial statements. I want, yeah. I want to know more Shots about fired. that. Yeah, I also, I mean, well, everything, you know, 100 years ago, the idea was, okay, you take someone to La Boheme for their first opera. And I absolutely declare war on that whole idea <laughs> as someone who absolutely loves La Boheme. I mean, Boheme's a great first opera to take people to because Boheme's a great opera. I hate the idea of Boheme's a gateway drug and it's easy and it's opera light. Fooey, that's just not true. A hundred years ago, that may have been true. I don't think it really was, but it may have been true a hundred years ago. Today, it is not true because music has changed. People's ears have changed. Music has become Wagner to a large extent. In other words, dissonance is the new consonance. Or simply put, Wagner rocks. And actually, the parallels between great rock and rollers and great opera composers are not lost on Will Berger. Look at the Beatles, which who in basically in terms of uh, being a band on the charts had six years which is inconceivable to me, but they did. But the arc is very similar, starting from a very popular medium and then taking things to a place that would not have been recognizable to their fans right. at the beginning. So the difference between Meet the Beatles in 1963 or 64 and then the White Album and Abbey Road, they're two different art forms, and yet you can tell they're the same people. And so, of course, you think, if I'm going to be profound, I'm only going to listen to the White Album. No, that's not true. And not only that, if you hear the early things, even though they had more in common with other music that was around at that time, there was still the voice of something entirely new and unique, right from She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand. It's like, this is like everything else and not like everything else. And The Flying Dutchman as Wagner's earliest hit, so it would be the Meet the Beatles of, right. of Wagner, is very much that way. Yeah. So the Flying Dutchman is Wagner at his best at a different point in his creative output than his other masterpieces. But out of those seven, they're all – think of them as sitting around a round table. I love that. Let's talk about the music a bit. Yeah. Let's let's start at the beginning, in fact, that overture. I think people know this, even yeah. if they don't know they know you this. Know it if you, yeah, exactly. It is one of the hits. Now, originally, it was considered um, a little loud compared to what was being done at the time, and big and brash and kind of like the Beatles, a little <laughs> vulgar and a little too in your face for really serious music. And it is. Somebody mentioned the the 
strong wind that blows off of the, every page of the score. And I think that was meant to be a put down. But wait, that's the story we're telling. It's, you know, the stormy seas. Yeah. And it uh, it very much depicts that. All Also, Wagner didn't always choose to write evocative nature music. And he did here in The Flying Dutchman. And he did it really well. Getting the sea and the sound. The sea yeah. and the wind. And there's a, also a certain spookiness that comes. And, I mean, that's sort of a... Uh, not very complimentary word, but let's say eeriness uh, that is apparent right from the first notes. Yeah. And there's even an echo in there. And whenever you, you hear an echo, well, very literally, it's supposed to be we're in the fjords of Norway. Right. But it, it, don't worry about it literally. Opera doesn't work like that. Uh, it's otherworldly. Yeah, I mean, it's a musical special effect. You have yeah. an echo coming off of the rocks in this fjord. Right, right. But but a lot of people take it to that point and say, isn't it neat how he did that? It's like, no, it's not a geology report. <laughs> it's what is he evoking with this very unearthly sound? Wagner's opera, The Flying Dutchman, is based on a maritime legend about a spectral sea captain and his ship. The tale has been told and retold by sailors from seaports around the globe. Even King George V of England supposedly had a run-in with the Dutchman during a three-year voyage with his brother. He wrote about it in his journal, describing a strange red light and a phantom ship. As legend goes, the Dutchman tempts fate and is eternally damned. That's basically the backstory for this opera, which plays upon this popular legend, right? There are a lot of sources from it, but there is a specific a legend of the Flying Dutchman, which is referred to in the opera. And the idea is there was a Dutch sea captain, remember in the 17th century when the Dutch were sailing all over the world, named van der Denken, I believe, who was having trouble rounding the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, presumably heading to Dutch stations in India and the East Indies. And uh, it's very difficult to this day to sail around there with winds and tides uh, from two oceans and so forth. And the legend says that he would sail eternally, blown about by these winds, until, and this is the part where Wagner's ears prick up, <laughs> until he could find some version of true love. Now, in a lot of these eternal wanderer myths, and including the legends of the wandering Jew, which later show up in Wagner's work, the idea of you wander until you find the anchor of true love. Okay, we're talking extended metaphor here, right? Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of versions of that. But this is the Flying Dutchman. There are other things that – by the way, the title refers to – and this is the source of endless confusion, both him and the ship. Right. His ship is also is called the Flying, the flying Dutchman. Dutchman. And it's flying in the sense of flying on the wind, fleeing and always in motion. It is not – um, tweet, tweet, flying, which, <laughs> I mean, perhaps there are versions of that as well, but that's not 
are what's going on here. Movement through the water rather than through the air in this yeah, case. Yeah, although although it is an interesting choice of it that gives that again more otherworldliness to it. But as a lot of the answers of who this person is are not um, answered. Another thing that always comes up is that his ship has blood red sails. Right. I don't know why, but that's just awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got that amazing sense of foreboding and you, yes. you have the, the sense of, of death and danger. Right. Just visually captured when you have yes, that image in mind. Yes, but you also have more than that. Blood red, is that's a color that comes up in opera sometimes, at Tosca. There, it was in the uh, design industry for many years, and there, the color of red velvet that the Metropolitan happens to be upholstered in is called opera red. That's the actual name for it. And there's a reason for that. So, yes, it's dangerous. It's scary. It's a little death-inducing. It's a little fatalistic. But it's also the life force. It is also erotic in the real meaning of that word. So it's blood. My guest is William Berger, author, broadcaster, and opera lecturer. I think it's time to meet the Dutchman. Dalent, the Norwegian captain, has sailed into a fjord to weather a storm, and somehow nobody notices there's this ghost ship with blood-red sails pulling up right next to them. All right, so that's when the Dutchman steps out and tells us about his miserable situation. He can't die, he can't find love, and it's been seven long years since he last came ashore. Here's bass baritone James Morris singing the role of the Dutchman, with James Levine conducting the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. So we, we meet the, the Dutchman who also tells us his story. Wagner did not like to assume the audience knew a lot of backstory. So he told it. And he was always trying to come up with different ways of telling it. But in this opera, along with traditions of opera at that time, it was more acceptable than it later became to walk on the stage and say, this is who I am and this is what I do. That became parodied, of, of easily parodied in, say, Gilbert and Sullivan. Where you come, I am the very model of a modern major general. Well, who asked you? <laughs> but that's kind of the fun of it. you know. That's funny. Isn't there, is it the Mikado, do you want to know who we are? Yes. They come on saying, right. do you want to know who we are? And then they tell us. And, and it's do. a lot of fun, yeah. Um, so he tells us that he must wander for seven years and he can only land every seven years. Why? Because in myth, it's always seven years. It just is. There's, I don't know why. And now he is landing again. He's very rich. He has jewels and gold and everything. 
And he's landing with his crew, who are his crew. That's weird, too. Are they ghosts? Yeah, sort of. So, And then is he a ghost? Well, not really, but that's weird. Okay. Uh, again, it's all suggested, not told. And here he is, and he intercepts this fisherman, Dalant, who wakes up and sees the Dutchman ship with the blood red sails or whatever you're going to see in a production right next to him. And it's it's very interesting because, and you'll hear this in the music, you get this idea of it's sneaked up on him. It's just like, wait, wait, where, where did that ship come from? You know, and that's a terrific effect in these fjords with the echoes and the sea and all this great setting. Dalant. Dalant always gets a bum rap from people because he's considered kind of uh, symbolic of materialism because he says, well, who are you? And I, well, you shouldn't be here. And then he sees the treasure chest. He's, wait, let's be friends. And, and, and have my daughter. And have my daughter. <laughs> and, well, the, the Dutchman does say, have you got a daughter? Because that's what he's looking for. He yep. needs to find a young woman who will be true to him unto death and break his curse. It turns out he's looking for love in all the right places. Even well, if it he, doesn't he end lucked up so out well. this time he in did. Norway of all places. And Dalin says, yes, I have a daughter and I'll take you to meet her. Listening to a duet between the ghostly Dutchman and the very real Dalent. Dalent is looking to set his daughter up with a rich guy, and the Dutchman is looking to break the curse that's ruining his afterlife. But what about this girl that they're bargaining over? I mean, we're an hour into this opera and we haven't even met her yet. Senta. Senta was born in a fishing village where women keep house and pray for their seafaring husbands. When Act 2 opens, all of the village girls have gathered at their spinning wheels to work and gossip. And the motion of the spinning wheels lends a certain rhythm to the music. There are tremendous earworms. Both the sailors have a chorus and the young lady friends of their spinning chorus. They're terrible earworms. And, of course, he got a lot of flack for that later when it's like, oh, we want to get beyond these four square melodies. But dramatically, the story they're telling is very interesting with the the young women at their spinning wheels. It's an earworm and it's it's kind of a little monotonous and repetitive because they're kind of commonplace people, and this is what Zenta's trying to break away from. So that's interesting. It's both a great tune and a great story at the same time. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Scent is kind of a loner, and she's sitting off by herself near a portrait of her ultimate dreamboat, the Flying Dutchman. The girls ask her to tell them the legend, and this is the moment when Senta comes to life. that you get right away from Santa is she's a little otherworldly, she's not like the other young women, and she's a little bit in touch with different dimensions. She's not mad, she's not crazy, she's not a witch. She's just got a, a bigger point of view than the other young ladies who are saying, oh, we're going to wear nice ornaments for a sweetheart. They They have very commonplace goals. Yeah. And I think that's neat about Santa. I think she's, she in a way, there's something oddly feminist about her, too. Although not in other ways. Soprano Deborah Voigt as the pleading Senta. She's singing, Let me be the one whose loyalty shall save you. Senta wants more than anything to be the Flying Dutchman's ultimate savior. She wants to redeem him through her love. And all this after seeing just one picture of the guy. In other words, she's fallen in love with an unreal image. In other words, she's fallen in love with a media creation. <laughs> And she has. Yeah. She has. And she sings this song. And when you have a song in opera, that means something that would be a song even if we weren't singing the rest of the time. Right. Okay. So it's a media creation, an art creation. So she has basically a crush on a rock star. And she she sees a picture of him. And she has a picture of him that she keeps around. And that's pretty wild, you know, for like an old school a Norwegian room that she would like <laughs> paint a picture of this guy who doesn't exist. Only he does. But, you know, anyway, this sort of distant, but in certain ways, very close celebrity, this bad boy, this prototype of the wanderer, the cowboy, who was that masked man, the guy on the motorcycle, the bad boy on the motorcycle. These are all the Flying Dutchmen. Yep. And that's what she wants. She does not want the typical dude in town. She's got one, Eric, who also gets kind of a bum rap. Beautiful music. But uh, no, sorry, you're just not capturing my imagination. She cannot hook her fantasy to him. Okay, a recap. Eric loves Senta. Senta does not love Eric. And they have one of those agonizing conversations that are all too real for most of us. 
Let's listen to what Wagner does with the jilter and the jilted in this duet between Senta and Eric. was Deborah Voigt singing the role of Senta and Ben Hepner as Eric, James Levine conducting the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. My guest today is William Berger, and we're talking about Wagner's opera, The Flying Dutchman. We've just reached the moment in Act Two when Eric realizes that the love of his life has fallen for a myth, a phantom, and a pretty sorry one at that. So, with Senta, you know, this thing that captures her imagination about him, it seems to be his sob story in a way that she's she's attracted to his grief and the fact yes. that he has this huge cross to bear um, and this idea – I mean, he's, he's kind of her project. She wants to save him. So Doesn't she just? Yes, doesn't she yes. just? And she says, with him, I must perish. So she's going to follow this through to the end. She wants to – Give herself over to him, even if it means giving up her life. Yes. What is she? Is she a person? Is she an archetype? Yes. <laughs> yes, all she's, things. <laughs> uh, I, I, yes, she's. This is one of the questions you ask whether you're a great expert or a newcomer at every opera you go to, and you ask it consciously. Who are these people, and what's the story they're trying to tell me? Who are these people on the stage? Now, in this opera, what you've got, what's interesting, is you've got a sense of eeriness. So it's a little out there, and yet Zenta is a real person. She's someone you might know. So she's very much that woman you know who falls in love with projects, who's a rescuer, who uh, feels closer to a distant maybe celebrity or someone distant than the people actually around her, not, not because it's a pathology, because there's something a little more profound about her. Mm -hmm. So we have the Dutchman who is an archetype, who is a, a symbol, who is a mythic figure. And we have Senta who is that and also a real woman. And that's what you want to listen for. That's what you're going to hear right in her ballad. The first time where she's singing yo-ho, yo-ho, and all these kind of formulaic things, she's playing a role and telling you the actual truth of who she is. And that's exciting. Let's jump to the meeting between Senta and the Dutchman. Here, Wagner takes tradition and throws it out the window. Listen to this. <laughs> When Dahlin finally arranges it that the Dutchman meets his daughter, he leaves them in a room, and it's sort of the moment <laughs> that we call, well, anybody else would have written a great love duet. And Wagner has complete silence, interrupted by an occasional tap that you can barely hear on the timpani. It's a gimmick, 
but it's a good one. And then Dolan comes back, and they have the trio, and he comes back, and is sort of so new. What have you two decided here? <laughs> and they sing a trio. So, and they've basically uh, just been staring at each other, staring the whole time. at yeah. each other, and it it is a brilliant stroke on Wagner's part. It can be a great moment in the theater because it's also the role of silence in all this music and all this too loud music, which is very important. There uh, is a trio, and that's extraordinary because Wagner didn't write many. He moved away from writing ensembles. And you'll learn here that he didn't write, he didn't move away from writing uh, these multi-voice parts because he couldn't. Right. So there are a couple of moments. There's there's one with uh, Dolan and the Dutchman, which is very unusual. Lower voices in her, and so on. So that's uh, worth listening for. <laughs> Opposite of that, I mentioned the earworm of the Sailor's Chorus, which you will never get out of your head and you'll be humming it while you do dishes for the rest of your life. (laughs) of course is the ship there's this great moment these are not the exact words but the idea is the spirit is um what the sailors kind of are trying to talk to the sailors on the ghost ship on the flying dutchman and they're saying drink with us and the answer they get basically is we can't we're dead (laughs) and they find this a little unnerving so the ghost sailors begin singing their ghostly chorus which is very amorphous and very it was the most radical music and even pointing toward later dissonance that Wagner would be inventing uh, at another point in his career in order to kind of whistle in the dark and lift their spirits the sailors decide to sing their earworm chorus as loud as possible so you get the you finally you learn that the point of that chorus wasn't that it was a memorable tune the point of that chorus was what is the role of a memorable tune at the same time as a more amorphous tune? And they sing loud in its men's voices, and it's a moment, let me tell you. That Sailor's Chorus, definitely a moment, with the flesh-and-blood Norwegians and the ghostly Dutchmen singing together. But Wagner's not done with this idea quite yet. 
We've got another spectacular moment in the final scene of The Flying Dutchman, which maybe has the most comically impossible stage directions in all of opera, but more on that in a minute. In this final scene, the real world and the ghost world collide once again, but sadly, a young Patrick Swayze is not involved. In the end, we have the supernatural figure and this very real figure, we have them matter and antimatter. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. We have them uh, meet in death, in transfiguration. In transfiguration. We, you know, we have right. we see some hints of what's coming in Tristan already with these two people and ascending to heaven. So, well, you see what 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 happens in a lot of operas and a lot of movies. The, the thing is, it, it's it's about the transformation. It's not do they die? And, and I know, I know, I've got friends coming, and I know they're going to ask me, wait, what happened at the end? And I'm I'm going to turn it right around and say, well, what do you feel happened? And you know, it's yes, it's very much she's she has an apotheosis that, <laughs> uh, according to Wagner's libretto, and then you get into people say, oh, but you have to stage exactly what the libretto said. Well, Wagner wrote librettos that made it impossible for you to stage it. I mean, in this case, purpose. we've we've got a, a woman jumping off of a cliff, we've got a ship sinking, and we've got two people ascending to heaven. So With the ship. With the ship. The ship is supposed to ascend into heaven, according to his. So obvious, and that's very interesting, because he's telling us, this is what I'm telling you is happening, and now stage director figure out a way, <laughs> knowing full well that he can't. Right. Impossible. Even when he designed his own stage with an unlimited budget at Bayreuth to to stage the ring, which is full of moments like this, he realized, oh, wait, you can't. So you have to do something else. So the production will uh, do whatever it does. What is important is that they are transformed in a sublime way, that whatever happened, their, their journey as we knew it as earthly people is over, and now something sublime happened. Well, that's the same thing you're going to get in your romantic comedy and your science fiction movie, isn't it? It is. Usually they live, but yes. We don't know case. that they don't live in this one. You know, that's it's, true. It's, it's, true. It's very, and that's true in a lot of Wagner's operas. You don't quite know what happened at the end because it's not something that is meant to be explained literally or else he would have written it in prose, <laughs> of which he wrote 22 volumes. And, and, and this is what Wagner and Verdi and the rest of them do best is transformation. This is what you get at the opera, how one thing becomes another. And it's not just showing you. It's not just explaining it. You are part of that journey. In The Flying Dutchman, the idea of love and holding on to a dream, as illogical as it is, will transform you into something better and bigger. That's good. And that is absolutely approachable for every member of today's audience. That's what's there. If you don't get hung up on, ooh, but but I, I'm supposed to be thinking that this staging doesn't have the same effect that the libretto had. No, forget it, forget it, forget it. So much bigger than that.
He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York, WQXR. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show in iTunes or find it in your favorite podcast app. You can look for a couple of video links and leave us a note on our show page at wqxr.org. I'd like to thank our guest, William Berger, and our producer, Noel Morris. I'm Marin Lazian. Thank you for listening. Thank you.